1: From Nice Sky Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. One of the staples in the horror genre, in film, but especially in television, is the anthology. Perhaps the first horror anthology movie was the 1945 British film Dead of Night. But the 1970s produced a slew of them. Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror based on the popular 1950s EC comic books, Asylum, Tales that Witness Madness, and The House that Drip Blood, among many others. Of course, the 80s brought Creepshow, among many more others, and they've kept coming to the present and surely beyond. Television horror anthologies started in the 1950s with The Twilight Zone and One Step Beyond, but again continue unabated to this day. Consider The Hitchhiker, Freddy's Nightmares, Tales from the Crypt, Tales from the Dark Side, The Hammer House of Horror, Thriller, Room 104, American Horror Story, My Own Masters of Horror, and many, many others. The appeal is simple. Rather than following a long arc over the length of a series season, each episode or season, as in the case of American Horror Story, is a self-contained tale, a miniature movie that stands on its own. You don't need to see any other episodes to understand what's going on, learn a character's travails beyond the current tale being told. Each one has a beginning, a middle, and an end. I love the format and have been lucky enough to work on a lot of them. In fact, my first produced work as a screenwriter and second as a director was on Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories back in the 80s. And before creating Masters of Horror, I directed episodes of Freddy's Nightmares and Tales from the Crypt. And most recently, I put together Nightmare Cinema around the same concept originally conceived as a pilot for a series. A new story every week offers an exciting alternative to the narrative series, which, in the days since streaming took over how we consume our media, are now serialized rather than featuring standalone stories. Little movies every week. That's a platform that excites me. One man who's been a major driving force in anthology horror is Gilbert Adler, who, as a producer and as a writer, worked on The Hitchhiker, Freddie's Nightmares, Tales from the Crypt, and others. Writer-producer A.L. Katz, I'll call him Alan here, partnered with Gil beginning with Freddy's Nightmares and throughout the run of Tales from the Crypt, but also wrote for the 90s version of The Outer Limits among numerous other credits. We'll talk with both gents about their work in the seminal series of our horror-loving lives after this. Where is your favorite ghost story set? An imposing stately home on a stormy night? A misty graveyard? A dank former asylum with dripping walls and abandoned doll heads everywhere? Or how about a bright buzzing modern metropolis in the very near future? When an engineering disaster shakes a city to its core, supernatural phenomena plague those left behind, seemingly tormented souls from beyond the grave. Instead of spirit mediums and seances, a group of researchers uses the tools of scientific inquiry to search for the truth, all while the horror, danger, and death build to a terrifying crescendo. Welcome to Falling, a dark, creeping horror tale from the classic haunted house genre in a time and a place you've never seen before, and which News Limited said will leave readers on the edge of their seats. Read an excerpt or buy the epic tale for just a couple of bucks right now at falling.io. Falling. So Gil, yeah. we first met a long time ago. First of all, thanks for being here, both you guys. Um a pleasure. We, we first met when we were both going to make movies with a man named Lawrence Vanger. I had actually made a short film called Breaking Up that would have been an R-rated relationship comedy while you were doing a certain fury with um, Stephen Gyllenhaal, the father of Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal. So tell me uh, how that came together. How did you and Lawrence meet and make a movie together?
2: Oh, I was, I was uh, developing a material. I was living in New York. And I, was, I was developing material uh, in New York. And a friend of mine was doing the same thing. And he developed a, sh- a movie and sold it to Playboy. And it was supposed to be like the, uh, up the, uh, it was called Up the Pentagon. But oh, it was yeah. before that, it was, it was based on uh, the British series uh, where they would have a uh, uh, carry on nurse, carry on this, carry on that. That was the idea of it. So this was to be the first one. And it was a very low budget movie. And um, the fellow who developed it and sold it to Playboy called me one day and said, I, I, I sold this thing to Playboy and I'm going to direct it and, and they won't let me produce it. So I need you to produce this. And I was like, what? And <laughs> that was my first trip you know, out to L.A. to make a movie. And we made you know, it was it was uh, it was called Up the Pentagon. Uh, it was called Other Things first, but then it became Up the Pentagon. I made that movie with Lawrence, uh, and he was, he, he, was put up the, he was putting up half the money with Playboy. And then he called me and he said, I'm doing this other movie, and the budget is three times larger, and I'll pay you, I think it was three times the fee. And he sent me the script, and it was another scary thing. And he said, we're going to make it in Vancouver, where I had never been before. And I said, uh, yeah, let's go to Vancouver. I would like that idea. So I flew out to LA from New York, and then we flew up to Vancouver. And the next thing I knew, we were making a *Certain Fury* um, up here in Vancouver for Lawrence.
1: Now, your producing chops go back to Brian De Palma, didn't? weren't you involved in the film that he made with his Sarah Lawrence film students? Yeah, it it's, a, a yeah. student film.
2: Yeah, we were. I was teaching at at, uh, at Hunter College in Manhattan, and Brian was teaching at Sarah Lawrence College. We met socially uh, through my business partner, Jack Tempchin at the time. And, uh, you know, Brian said, I don't really want to drive up to, to Sarah Lawrence. I, I go over there like twice a week and I, I don't want to do that. It's too far and <laughs> traffic. And so he came up with this idea and he said, why don't we talk to Sarah Lawrence and Hunter? We'll merge the classes and we'll teach it all day Saturday in your apartment and my apartment in Manhattan. And I said, they're not going to allow us to do that. They want you on campus. You know, you're a big director. And so he said, no, let's try. And so they loved the idea. And so we taught for two semesters. Uh, we came up with a story. And then we said, okay, let's you know, bring these uh, 15. I think we have 15 students. We'll bring them in. And each week, you write scene one, you write scene two, you write scene three. Next week, we read it, we critique it. And then we switch over. Okay, you wrote scene one, now you're re- reading, uh, writing scene five. You wrote scene eight, now you're writing. And we rewrote this for two semesters during which time we talked about, okay, what's involved in making a movie? How do you make a movie? Who does what? And at the end of two semesters, we said, thank you and good night. And these kids looked at us and said, wait a minute, you said we were developing a a screenplay and you've always said, if you want to learn to make a movie, make a movie. We have a script now. We want to make this movie. And so the three of us looked at each other and gulped hard and said, oh, okay. (laughs) So Brian said, well, we got to raise At the time, $350,000. And I said, well, how do we do that? And he said, well, I'll raise half. You would raise the other half. And so we went to, uh, he went to literally within 48 hours, he had his half of the money. He called up and he said, look, I don't know how you guys are doing, but I've got my half all set because I went to my friend, this guy, George Lucas, and he's putting up 25. Oh, that guy. And I went to my other friend, Steven Spielberg, and he's putting up 25. And then I just directed uh, The Fury with Kirk Douglas, and I told Kirk about it, and he's putting up 25. So I'm, I'm almost, you know, I got most of my money raised already. And, and we looked at each other, Jack Timson and I, and went, oh. And so we hurried <laughs> around Manhattan, talking to accountants and lawyers, trying to convince them to give us the money. We finally raised our half of the money, and we were off making a movie with Brian De Palma.
1: Amazing. And starring Kirk Douglas among others. Yeah.
2: Kirk Douglas, Nancy Allen, Keith Gordon. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty amazing. I, I lived on campus at Sarah Lawrence in the, in in my production office was where I lived with no air conditioning. And it was, it was just, you know, it was just really painful.
1: (laughs) But you made a feature film that got a theatrical release.
2: Yeah. And what, what really, what was really quite funny was we, we, uh, we went to United artists because Brian knew them very well. And they gave us a half a million dollar advance for domestic rights. And we went to a foreign company and they gave us a half a million for foreign rights. So you were in profit quickly. So before we even finished the movie, we were way into profits and we distributed double the investment to our investors before we finished the movie nice my investors i'll never forget this lawyers and accountants in new york called me one day and said what are you doing where where did you get this money from you you can't (laughs) give us this money and i told them what happened and they were like well and and the movie's not finished and you're giving us double our money and we're going to make more you want to make another one (laughs) (laughs) and And did you we said no. Let's finish this one. Let's let's see what happens with this one. Don't don't they all work out that way? Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, Alan, where did it start for you? What were the things that you watched or read that that inspired you to want to work in movies and television?
3: The, when I was a kid growing up in Baltimore, <clears throat> in the uh, '60s, early '70s. On Channel 13, they had a, a block in the, in the weekend where they showed uh, Marx Brothers movies, W.C. Fields movies. They shut down to, cut down to an hour, so you know, badly truncated. But i man, I fell in love with, with the Marx Brothers and W.C. Fields, and I wanted to do that. And So it was
1: comedy that was the first magnet for you?
3: I I've always thought this was comedy. When I had to tell some the crypt to me, that was black comedy. I I never yeah. thought for two seconds that it was horror. It was it was comedy. Comedy was was what was that was how I met Gil. Uh, I had a, written a comedy. Well, tell me about
1: how how that did begin.
3: I had it's uh, funny my whole. To to come out to L.A., I I had a high school friend named Carol Yumpkes who came out to L.A. She became an agent at William Morris. And I was uh, I went to Vassar. And after Vassar, I was uh, banging around in New York, not not doing much of anything. And and Carol said, hey, you should try writing a screenplay. So I I wrote one and sent it to her. She said, hey, this is pretty good. Should come out and meet and greet. And, you know, I, I was so East Coast centric to me, LA, I visited once before when I was 14, it was the stupidest place on the planet. Hey, it was the <laughs> land of the avocado head. It was, and I thought, okay, all right, I, I, I flew out for a week and uh, everyone was so nice. It was June of 1985 and, and it was a very different place than it is today. Everyone was really lovely, and and the meetings were great. I, I mean, people were blowing so much smoke up my ass. It was <laughs> I I had never experienced such such an incredible feeling. Uh, on one of those meetings, I I met Gil Adler, and uh, that's when when that relationship began. My fourth day, God, uh, uh, it, my agent took me to a premiere, uh, St. Elmo's Fire, mm-hmm. which was. As intoxicating as as you can imagine. Uh, I had one morning offer, I didn't have any meetings, and someone said, Hey, you should take a drive through to Topanga Canyon. And I went, okay. And this was 1985. It was not anywhere near like it is today. And oh, from the when you get from the exit on, on the 101 and now you're heading through the hills, it's just it's so beautiful. You're within the city limits. And by the time I got to PCH, I had completely sold out. I, I was, <laughs> I was moving to LA. It was a fact of life. Screw New York. I, I was now one of the land of the avocado, of the land of the avocado head. And, uh,
1: Hey, you're talking about my hometown,
3: man. Yeah. Hey, this is, <laughs> I, I, it's funny. I, I, a wandering Jew am I, and I've never felt, <laughs> I, I never felt at home any place really. And I've lived a whole bunch of places. LA is the first place I ever felt at home. And,
1: wow. and So the two of you managed to hit it off creatively and you you became writing partners as well, right?
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. We, we, uh, we first, Gil and uh, found a financial partner and we developed a project that I had written called French Kiss. And while that was happening, Gil and I began to talk about a, a project that was near and dear to his heart, a, a very personal story that ultimately became... Uh, it, it's called Love and Linoleum, and it was uh it was Gill's uh, his genesis story, <laughs> nice as it as it were, and uh, and that was our first first thing that we actually wrote together, and it was an inc- it was such an incredibly, I it, it, it was a gorgeous creative experience.
1: And uh, I mean, it it continued for years and years, but Gil, you were in on the ground floor at HBO. One of their earliest original series was The Hitchhiker, which itself was a horror anthology series, which in another way broke ground being another TV series shooting in Vancouver, which was not a common thing then, but became the norm for shooting so many, especially genre shows, including Masters of Horror, by the way. Yeah. The, so tell me about the, the, the development and, and how The Hitchhiker came to be.
2: Well, The Hitchhiker was a show that, uh, that Louis Chesler, who I knew from many years before uh, through my uh, another business partner in New York, they went to Amherst together. And he came back and had this idea and uh, had a partner. And they went and they sold it to HBO. And then uh, basically, I, I knew Chris Albrecht quite well, who was running HBO at the time. I would, I would be this young kid coming out from New York and I would have these meetings that were set up for me and I would see if anybody would hire me or give me a job or even talk to me. And one of the few people that actually took the time and talked to me was Chris Albrecht. And so I developed a bit of a relationship with Chris and, and when they said they needed somebody to make the, that project, uh, Chris said, well, you, why don't you guys talk to Gil Adler? And Louis Chesler said, Gil Adler? I, I've known him for 20 years. What, what, is, <laughs> what, are, you, what are you telling me about him? Anyway, so the next thing I knew, I was on a plane up to Vancouver, and actually, I live now. I can almost look where the studio was, and now the studio is gone, and it's all condos. It was on a mountaintop overlooking Vancouver. It it was beautiful. It was just a beautiful studio. So you're
1: full-time in Vancouver now?
2: Pretty much, yeah. Yeah.
1: But uh, so how did that come to be? I mean, it was one of the first series commitments that HBO made. They had made some feature films. Uh, Mostly they were a pay TV show that showed theatrical releases. Yeah. right. Right. So how did that come about?
2: Uh, You mean The Hitchhiker? Yeah. You know, they pitched it and Chris liked it. And the next thing I knew, I, I wasn't involved in that part of it. I was brought in when they decided they wanted to make it and didn't really know what to do or how to make it. And then Chris said, well, maybe you should talk to this guy.
1: Well, that led to another anthology that you both worked on Freddie's nightmares, which I worked on as well. Um, And a lot of, uh, it was fun introducing you to a lot of directors who you ended up using like Toby Hooper and Tommy McLaughlin and Bill Malone. So yeah, That came out of a successful series of feature films. Mm -hmm. And these were made not for a network, but for syndication on a very limited budget. They were shot in 16 millimeter uh, and, and finished on video. So tell me how that came together and how that relationship between the two of you as writers and producers came together.
2: I knew Bob Shea from years and years ago in New York when he first started New Line Cinema. Um, and I knew him quite well. And when they started doing this, the idea came about that New Line and, and uh, Lorimar at the time uh, would co finance and co produce the series. Um, Bob called me up and said, you know, we, we need a producer, we need someone who's going to be able to do it for very little money and, you know, shoot 10, 10 uh, pages a day. Uh, shoot a, an episode in five days. And on day six, you don't get a chance to rewrite the next episode or be even breathe. You go right into the next episode. And we want to do 22 of these. So right. we and to-
1: each of them were broken into two parts. It was a one hour show with two half hour stories,
2: right? In the first season, it was, complicated. It was, it was really complicated. Yeah, yes. In the, in the first year, that's what it was in the second year in, with success. They came to us and said, uh, listen, we really like the idea. You've done a great job that it plays as an hour and they also play independently as two half hours. But now we'd like to be, make them two hour movies as well. So Aye. can you guys can you guys write these so that they work as half hours, work as hours, and then they work as two hour movies? And, <laughs> and by then Alan and I were sort of throwing so many balls up into the air. We said- yeah, sure, we can do that. <laughs> and then we would, and then we would agonize over. Well, wait a second. It works as an hour. Where's the half hour break? Oh, yeah, we can make the half hour break there. How does a two hour going to? Oh, wait a minute. We we'll put this one with this one. Yeah, I, I suppose. And and that's what we did.
1: So, Gil, your hands were certainly full with all of the production details. Uh, you were line producing as well as basically running the show. Right. So, Alan, I assume most of the keyboard punching. Uh, lay in your hands tell me about the uh, the circumstances under which the show was written
3: and made'm I'm, I'm a speedy typist <laughs> there, there you go my my secret is out uh, i'm 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 really good at punching out a first draft and then let's go from the first draft and so that's really kind of what how uh, whether it's we started a, a process back then, um, we, we, we start with an outline and we start with, a, 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 as we progressed as, as partners, we, we would start with just writing a, a the more a very, very detailed outline so that by the time we got to the script, really, we were just transposing it from one f- format into another. So we tended to do a lot of our thinking together. That would be in the outline. And then the script really would just be really the typing.
1: Well, what were the guidelines? I mean, this all had to take place in Freddy Krueger's world, Freddy Krueger's hometown.
3: Where where all that was concerned, you know, I, God, I, it was like a Rubik's cube as much as it was a, a story. And really, it was one of the, it was one of those situations where it, it, it's a question of structure. And if you simply make it a matter of structure that laid out most of the story, you had a couple of characters, you knew what you wanted the characters to do, you, you knew where, where certain high spots had to be. And really the, the, the necessity of the structure really dictated what, what little creativity was was left over, and and the rest it was just to to to, to make the, the the nightmare sequences seem nightmarish. But it was such a it was such a tightly storied show, if you know what I mean, because of its its odd structure. My my strongest memory is that it demanded a, a tremendous amount of structure within the story, and that just dictated everything. There there wasn't a whole lot of creative storytelling to it because the the structure dominated.
1: Right, and and the star, Robert Englund as Freddy Krueger, basically was your crypt keeper. He wasn't in many of the stories at all. Oh, uh, no, no, a no. few key, uh, the pilot that, that yeah, Toby yeah. directed, he was a crucial part of, but rarely appeared otherwise. And you're also doing it for syndication, so you didn't have quite the strictures as broadcast network. But mine actually got edited when it aired locally on Channel 9, and and we created a stink with the Directors Guild because they're not allowed to do that.
3: What did they edit?
1: Uh, they edited some of the more grotesque violence uh, out of it, like
2: four or five different scenes. Do you remember that, Gil? I, I, re- I remember your episode.
3: Yeah. So episode. I don't really mind, but
2: I, w- I would have said, oh, shucks, what are they doing? They're taking the best part out. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly. But but it was still a different world because you're working with individual channels and, and stations in syndication, and there wasn't one overarching um, set of
2: rules. Right. But Lorimar and Newline, you know, would approve the scripts for us, and they had already sold it to syndication. So they were sort of like the, our arbiters of if you will, taste, although they would, <laughs> even though they, were <laughs> uh, they, they would taste it, they would sort of say, well, no, you can't do that. It's too gory, or it's too this, or you can't show that. And they would come back and, and give us notes. But for the most part, we will, I think, I remember being left alone pretty much as to, you know, what we wanted to do, what we could do. I mean, we, we, knew, we didn't really take it far out of what we thought was the strike zone of what they needed.
1: Yeah, well, it it had a pretty flexible uh, level of intensity that uh, we were able to hit because of it being syndicated, and I think L.A. was the only station that that uh, edited my episode. But uh, I, I'm very proud to have been the only show that was edited for television. <laughs> I,
3: I recall it being very hard to find here in L.A. That they, they kept moving it around; it was it was impossible yeah. to find when when when, they, when it was broadcast here
1: the joys of syndication. And now uh, we should let everybody know that it is available on Screambox, which is uh, a uh, a horror channel very much like Shudder, um, that is a curated uh, monthly fee horror channel. I think it's five bucks a month, but Screambox has all of the episodes of Freddy's Nightmares. Wow, wow. Commercial free and unedited. So this set of skills that you developed in the making of Freddy's Nightmares Mm really lay the groundwork for what was to come in tales from the crypt now i don't believe you guys were involved in the first season of tales from the crypt but sure. season two i believe Gil did uh joel silver came to you for that
2: well kind of what happened was uh Joel uh in, in their inimitable way the partners i'll call them um went uh so this is bob zemeckis and walter
1: hill and richard donner and joel
2: and and david Guiler and david guyler
3: I mean, it, it was really, it, it was what we would call an overage. You know, the crypt the, the partners never set up the original Tales from the crypt like a TV series. Right. And so they never had a deficit partner. And so when they spent a million dollars cash in the hold, the person who was you know, paying for it all was HBO.
2: And, and after going over budget, uh, they wouldn't pay the money to HBO and Chris canceled the show. And they went to him and, and he said, well, I, if I ordered more shows, you'd have to make up the money in, in the new shows, which was almost, you know, it was very punishing. And so, you know, Joel was, you know, I don't, he was walking about it and, and Chris called him and said, look, there's one guy that's worked for me before who's helped me out and has done a good job. You should meet with him. And if he's interested, then, you know, we can talk about. And so the next thing I knew, I got a call from Chris saying you, you need to meet with Joel Silver and Dick Donner and Bob Zemeckis and Walter Hill and David Guiler right away. And, uh, So we went over for that meeting and, you know, it it was kind of a funny meeting because, you know, Joel in his inimitable way was pacing in his office. And he was saying to me, these, these have to look like movies. They can't look like television and you've got to shoot, you know, every five days, you got to shoot one. You can't go into the sixth day, only five days. And I don't know how you're going to do it because you're going to have to shoot five pages a day, every day, day in and (laughs) day out. Impossible. (laughs) And, you know, on, on uh, Freddy's, we were shooting 10 pages a day, every day. Yep. I looked at him and I said, uh, what do we do after lunch? <laughs> he said, what? And he got very mad at me. And, and then I told him the Freddy's story. And I said, we were shooting 10 pages a day, every day, day in and day out for 22 episodes. And literally on the spot, he said, okay, well, then you should do this. You should do this. I'm going to make this happen for you. And, and uh, But you, you got to understand, it's got to look like a movie. I'm going to fire you if it looks like television and you've got to stay on and make up this money, which we did. But, you know, the, 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 the genius of that really was more Alan than me, because Alan, when we got that mandate, you know, we wrote the shows to accommodate the time and the money that we had. Sure. And he was much more into making sure those, you know, those episodes were five days because, our, our collective response was not only do we have to feel we can shoot them in five days, but the directors that we bring in have to agree to that. Because if we say to a director, here's a five-day uh, schedule for this episode, and, and the guy or gal says, oh, no, we need six days or we need eight days, guess what? Ain't going to be done in five days, which would mean rewriting to accommodate their requirements and also to bring it into a five, stay, keep it into a five-day situation. And that was the genius of the guy who you're looking at across over there, Mr. Katz. Well, thank you. But those things were very hard to, you know, get them to that place in that quick a time.
1: Well, Alan, tell me about how that came to be because you had great makeup effects, special effects people. Your technical crew was really high end. It has definitely has a theatrical look. Um, and what were the marching orders? And and what were the the restrictions that you put on yourself as you were coming up with these stories, many of which were based on the comic book stories.
3: The the arrangement we had with with Bill Gaines, we we had to use the title. We, we couldn't bring in original titles. They had we had to use the titles from the comics, and so in theory, every episode was based on a comic book, um, well, 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 on a comic story, and. In essence, we might take some some idea from it, some something from it, and then the rest was 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 totally an invention. The great thing about Crip was that they were little morality tales, absolutely drenched in irony. Right. And so that was really the trick. it was It was starting with you know the little bit of of you know that leaping off point that the comics provided. But but there was something else that that was very much part of what, what was I think what Gill and I brought to it, which was the spirit of Bill Gaines. Right. And I grew up reading, I grew up reading the, you know, Tales from the Crypt when I was when I was a kid. I, I yeah, I had them in my bed, you know, scrunched at the bottom. Uh, <laughs> I read Mad Magazine. I loved Mad Magazine. Bill Bill Gaines was a god. And so to be working on a show that in essence sprang from Bill Gaines's creative loins, as it were, It I felt incredibly connected to the material. And so I was, my mandate was to be as faithful, to be really as faithful to the thing that, that brought me to the dance as I possibly could be. And yeah, we, well,
2: went to, we, we went to Bill and we said to him, look, we're gonna show you these scripts before we show them to the partners, before we show them to HBO. Yeah, and If you don't like them, We're going to change them. We're not going to argue with you about, you know, oh, it should be this because, because, because if you don't like it, it's going to change. We're not going to write anything. We're not going to produce anything that you don't love. So we want that to be understood right away. And initially, I think he thought we were just, you know, full of crap and that we're just, you know, playing up to him. But when we actually started doing that and we would give him the scripts before anyone else and he would call us up and he would say, well, I think this, I think that. And eventually he got into the point where he was loving, you know, what we were doing and he really trusted us. Then the relationship among the three of us was like such a special relationship that, you know, we became good friends and, 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 and socialized, you know, with him when he came to LA or when we went to New York and it was just a, it was such a delightful relationship that one day we were having lunch in Dick Donner's trailer with Joel uh, while he was shooting one of the lethal movies uh, and Bill Gaines, and Bill Gaines was in town. And, and, uh, and Joel said, uh, listen, Bill, I'm going to fire these guys. We don't need them anymore. I'm going to f- just fire them. We'll get rid of them. Cause uh, I don't even know if you like what they're doing. And Bill Gaines actually stood up for us. And he said, are you crazy? You signed these guys for life, sign them <laughs> to a contract for life. They ain't going anywhere, Bill, Joel.
3: So was there a writer's room or did you guys handle everything? It was, we were, pretty much we were the writer's room and Scott Nimmerfro. Right. And right. Scott was was uh, Dick Donner's head of development. And Scott, I, I think Scott really had been gunning for the job that I got. Yeah. And uh, Scott, after the first season, I, I it, it occurred to me that Scott didn't need my input on, on any tales from the script he, wrote, uh, script he ever wrote because he just got it as much, if not better than I did. And Scott's episodes are simply some of the best. And and honestly, I, my, my after that first season, I would say to Scott, however many you want, whatever you want to do, man, it's all yours. <laughs>
1: it's and really great.
3: truly, he, he, he delivered, he, yeah. I mean, he didn't need someone touching his stuff.
1: Yeah, it was great. Just like on Masters of Horror, we didn't have a writers' room. We had independent uh, people would come in and pitch stories, or uh, directors would come in with stories, or writers they'd worked with, or whatever. And I was kind of the writers' room. Yeah, in, every, whenever we needed rewrites and things like
3: every that every other writer but Scott ultimately got rewritten by me because it's it had to it had to be our franchise. You right. know, it's an anthology, but it is drenched in franchise. Right. And you must take care of the franchise. I think that's that's the thing that, that we especially brought that Gill and I brought to this party. And I think having worked on Freddy's and to a degree, Gill having worked on, on Hitchhiker, but Freddy's especially because it, it was such a strong franchise. Right. And it was such a yeah, such a, a distinctive franchise. And crypt. Before Gil and I went aboard Crypt, you know, the, the Crypt Keeper had been relatively, had, well, completely undeveloped. He pretty much wore the same little uh, you know sackcloth and sat in the same chair and pretty much said, you know, said the same kind of thing. And one of the questions that I asked as Gil and I went aboard was, well, we need to do more with Crypt Keeper, was, was my attitude. And my question was, what does he do when he's not being a Crypt Keeper? When he punches out at the end of the day, okay, when he goes home, what does he like to do? What what are his hobbies? Who are his friends? Who does he call? Who does he hang out with? What are his favorite uh, songs, movies, books, whatever? And part of what we did was we, we invented the Crypt Keeper.
1: You gave him a reinvention, a reboot. Yeah.
2: As a, we, we said we said, to, we said to Joel. I got I just interrupted you a little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We said to, we said to Joel. Alan went in. I remember this. We went into a meeting, and Alan said that to Joel, and Joel looked at us and he said, "He's dead.
3: He lives in a box. He's a puppet." <laughs> <laughs> He's a puppet. Yeah. Uh, not not too long after, when Joel suddenly saw the, the merchandising possibilities of his right. of his of of his puppet that lived in a box. Uh, he did something that was rather out of character for him he gave Gil and i a merchandising deal tied to the Keeper because he oh recognized God. he recognized that that we had added value that it did that the cryptkeeper did not have before we touched it well that's pretty
1: amazing uh, uh, another big difference between freddy's nightmares and tales from the crypt aside from budget and it being hbo and and all of that was it had movie stars it yeah. had big time directors, hmm. you know, you had Toby, you had William Friedkin, you had um, uh, Richard Donner, you had Walter Hill, you had all these people, but you Fried, also Fried, had
2: Friedkin, John Frankenheimer yeah. John Frankenheimer.
1: Yeah. And, and, and you had. um Tom Hanks and Arnold Schwarzenegger directing episodes too, which people don't remember. Yeah. But So tell me about the difference on, on working on that high-end Hollywood scale as opposed to the independent New Line scale.
2: Well, the one thing that we went in and we t- said to Joel uh, before we agreed to do the show, we said, we, there, there are three things we would change in the show. And if you like these three things, then, then maybe we're the right guys. And if not understood, you don't want to go there and we, we'll we'll just leave. And we said one is they're based on comic books. That if you read the first panel of the comic book, you know the whole show. So we'll we'll take something from the comic book. We have to take the title, as Alan said, and and we'll but we'll put something else there. And we we'll, and we we'll, and we we'll, you'll know it's from the comic book in tone, but it may, it may be the only way, only thing you will know. Secondly, well, you'd start
1: with the splash page, splash page. Yes.
2: Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. But also, I mean, in terms of what the story was. Right. Uh, so the stories didn't weren't working for us because we said, well, you know, you read the first two panels, you know, the whole story. So we wanted to I mean, it.
3: Ultimately it was always, it was the penultimate moment in most of the comic. If the penultimate moment. Then they go back and tell you how to get to the penultimate moment. Well, by then you figured it out. The audience is miles ahead. So yeah, we had to change that structure. Yeah. So
1: what wanted- was new in the 1950s was not new in the 1980s. Right. And,
3: and we wanted
2: it to be yeah. more twisted, yeah. more, more humor, more irony and more scare. And so we said, we would want to do that. The second thing we said was, you know, the Crypt Keeper right now is, is in a black shroud. Um, we don't really see him very well. He's kind of menacing. I, we We have this idea that, you know, he should be accessible. He should be the punctuation at the end of the show, which basically says, you don't have to look underneath your bed. You're safe. You can turn the lights out and go to sleep. And so we would want to make him other characters. We want to make him the Beatles, and we want to make him running for president. We want to make him a chiropractor. We want to make him a dentist. We want to... And, and, and Joel, at this point, I could see his eyes were like looking at us like, these guys are nuts. And then this, I said, and the third thing was, we think this will attract major talent, and we want to go after stars. And he cut me right off and said, you're never going to get stars. HBO is never going to give you the money to do that. And I said, no, I didn't ask for any more money. I said, I want to go after stars. I think if we ask actors to do things that they normally don't get asked to do, give somebody who's in a drama a comedy, give somebody a comedy, a drama, then they'll we want to do it. After all, we're local, we're in town, and we're five days of shooting. I mean, why not? Why, why wouldn't they do that? And so Scale they, plus
3: 10, scale plus 10 is what we paid everybody. Everybody.
2: Wow. And so, and so he poo pooed that, but he said, well, listen, if you want to try that, try that, but I know it's going to happen, you're going to fail. And we said, okay, well, well maybe we'll fail. We, we can live with that. So those are the three things that we wanted to change when we came into the show.
1: And he agreed to it. And uh, the results show for years of Tales from the Crypt. Uh, And in in my case, you know, I had a blast. I was able to do one called Whirlpool that actually took place in the EC offices that I decided, you know, I uh, encouraged you guys to change it to the 1950s when they were actually doing it and to to cast comedians in the leads yeah. and reversing the roles, male and female roles. We had Rita Rudner and Richard Lewis, mm. and it was a blast. And to really shoot in a in a heightened comic book style, the way that Creepshow tried to do, mm. um, where you're actually taking cartoon frames, bringing them to life in really exaggerated camera lenses and things. And I had just the best time doing that. And the cast had a wonderful time. And, and like you said, you're in for five days. How much work is that? And you're in and out. But the the real coup was, you know, Tom Hanks is a terrific director. And the first thing he directed was for you guys.
3: Was it awesome, yeah. Yeah.
2: And he was, he was such a delight to work with. You know We went to him at the beginning and we said, look, you're, you're, you know, acting, you're an established actor, you know, that area. If there's an area you don't know, like special effects, camera, anything. Just tell us and, you know, we'll, we'll help. We'll bring in the right people that, that can cover that. And he was very, very gracious about, you know, us offering that and took us up on some occasion once in a while, had some questions, but basically he really was a director. I mean, he really did a wonderful job. Very intuitive. And, and it was, it was really delightful to work with him.
1: A very talented director. That thing you do is terrific. Mm. Uh, you know it it really has i I wish he would direct more so what are the episodes that you guys are most proud of having done
2: all the ones we produced
1: (laughs) (laughs) well the first three were pretty good too
3: yeah they were were.
1: the donner hill and
3: uh uh, uh, yellow
1: zemeckis yeah oh yellow yeah Uh,
3: it's hard not to 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 have a a, it's such a, a an odd experience coming, you know, I had been unemployed for a bunch of years before I did tales. And so I had gone from being unemployed to suddenly working with, you know, uh, Bob Zemeckis and Kirk Douglas on, on a TV show. Right. So it was for me, really, it was a trip from one place to quite another. Uh, When yellow was, was, was there in the floating about when Gil and I, came aboard um i I think it had been it had been written originally as one of as a two-fisted tale. i think is what it might have been written as originally
1: yeah i thought that it was a pilot for a new series It, it, it
3: was it was it was part of that as well uh but the problem was the 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 original writers did not do a very good job and bob bob z's whole idea for for yellow um it's a world war one story and he wanted to to do uh, to pay homage to one of his favorite films when he was at usc uh paths of glory that stars right. the world war one movie starring kirk douglas
1: the, Kur- and, the
3: kubrick film yep and he wanted yeah 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 yeah, yeah. And, and he wanted to to he wanted it to to really to look and feel like like paths of glory and he wanted kirk the problem was the script was just not good enough to to get kirk and as the, the guy in charge of doing all the rewrites, Bob turned to me and basically said, you gotta make this good so we can get Kirk. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. <laughs> and uh, you know, really the, the, the problem was just making the father-son relationship work. So it was believable. And, and really all, all that we did was we invested in the characters and voila, we, we got Kirk. Right. And Bob was exquisitely gracious about that. He, w- he was really t- terrific. Um,
1: uh yeah, I was lucky enough to have him direct an episode that I had written on amazing stories.
3: oh uh, yeah, 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 wow. And it's, he did
1: an amazing job with that, just incredible. I mean, he was a magician as well as a filmmaker.
3: working with him is such a special experience. um the we also did the next episode that 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 he did he'd uh, it's called you murderer. and the whole, you know, it was the usual thing with Bob. We, we went up, we had lunch with Bob to talk about what his episode was going to be. And after lunch, he said, all right, guys, all I know is I'm going to do a subjective camera show from the point of view of a dead guy. That's it. Oh, and I want the dead guy to be played by Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> right. How are we going to do this, guys? And that's the wonderful question that, that Bob Z always asks. How are we going to do this, guys? You know, Bob has an idea in the back of his mind how, how he wants to problem solve this, but what he does is he throws it out to the entire room. Yeah. And you might have an answer that doesn't solve all the problems all the way, but you can't have a bad answer.
1: Yeah, uh, well, that's what I mean about him being a magician. He would come up with unsolvable, impossible visual ideas that you solved.
3: Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, And, and it, at some point in, you know, he, he had a shot in mind that it was, it was an impossibility. How are we yeah. going to do it, guys? And you did it. And everyone gets invested. It, it's not, it wasn't his, it was ours.
2: Yeah. Well, <laughs> that, that was the best part of working with Bob. I mean, it, it was, it, you could say anything. You didn't have to edit yourself before you said something even though it might be ridiculous and there's no way we could do that or, or even think about it. You wouldn't
1: feel stupid.
2: You wouldn't feel stupid at all. And, and he would, he would listen to you and comment about it and then discover together that this wasn't, this wasn't an area where we should go. We should take it in a different direction. That's what made it so delightful because it it was, it was a process and it was a collaboration and, and you could say anything.
3: When we shot the, the, uh, when we, the first day of, uh, of, of, of rehearsal on, on that episode that we did for Bob, his su- subjective camera show, uh, John Lithgow, Isabella Rossellini, uh, I forget who else is in it. But uh, it, it, we had to, since it was subjective camera, we created a four wall set for Bob with you know, ceilings. And and we gave Bob something that we never gave any other director. We gave him two days of rehearsal. And it wasn't- Oh, it helped camp. to be the producer. <laughs> it, 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 it sure did. But it wasn't for the, for the actors, it was for the crew. And mm-hmm. the very first day, he brought everybody onto the set. Everybody, even craft services, was, was said, hey, come on on. You know? And so everyone's crowded onto the set, the whole crew. And Bob says, all right, guys, here's what I'm thinking. And he says, I think the shot's gonna start down here and this happens and that happens. And it goes over here and over here. And then, oh yeah, then this has to happen over here and over here, and then I, I think he has to land over here. And he turned to the room. And he said, "How are we going to do with this, guys?" <laughs> and everything you needed to know about how to be a great collaborator was right there on display for you. Lap it up.
1: Well, Gil, what were the toughest ones to to bring to fruition?
2: Uh, they were all pretty tough because of the time and the you know we, we had we had time issues, we had money issues. Um, so they they all had that same thing. I mean, we I had one situation with you know Alan and I decided you know because Joel would say who, who who should who should we have direct an episode and so we came up and we said well you know one of our favorites is Billy Freakin. Mm, yeah Joel would, Billy Freakin are you out of your mind Billy Billy can't <laughs> he can't put on his pants in five days and and we said well you know we we really like him and he goes well you're responsible if you go over you're going to pay for it I'm going to take it out of your your fee. And I and I and and we looked at each other and we said, yeah, but we really like Billy, so we contacted Billy. We gave him a script, and we said, you know, it's five days. And he came back and he said, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to do it. And we looked at each other and we said, you know, I think before we commit to Billy, we better sit down with him and make sure he understands what he's getting himself into. So we met him at Yugo's, um, which was a famous place, you know, on 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 Kings Road and Santa Monica Boulevard, where a lot of show people had breakfast and I'll mm-hmm. never forget. We met him and he's sitting across from us. And, and as we're talking, I'm getting more emotional about the show. Cause I was very, you know, intensely involved with the show and you know cared so much and leaning closer to him and closer to him. And people said to him, said to me, you know, you just got to be careful because if he doesn't like what you're saying, he may punch you. And I was <laughs> like, punch me. What do you mean? Punch me. And they
1: weren't I, joking.
2: <laughs> like right in the nose. He might punch you. And I was like, get out of here he's not gonna punch me I'll kill him <laughs> anyway I'm getting closer to him and closer to him and I'm saying we do him in five days everybody does them in five days we write them for five days if if you don't think it's good in five days either don't do the show or we're gonna rewrite it you have to agree five days and he looks at me and he says do you have any idea who you're talking to <laughs> and now I'm feeling okay here comes the punch in the nose <laughs> and he and I go well and I'm sort of backtracking now I go uh, well Billy I, 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 I and he goes, listen, I love your passion. I love the way you're talking about that show. And I'm going to do this show and I'm going to do it in five days. And I went, oh, um, <laughs> and you're on. We want you to do it.
1: Not the experience they had on Twilight Zone.
2: No. Um, and we <laughs> became quite good friends after that. In fact, he asked me to do, make a movie that he was going to make at Paramount. And unfortunately, I was working at Warner Brothers at the time and I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. But I was very, very honored and and pleased that he even thought of me, you know, and called me to produce it. Um, But I'll never forget, I went to to a meeting at Paramount and the first thing they said to me when I sat down was, so what do you have on Billy Freakin' that he's insisting you produce this movie? (laughs) And I said, I think I'm, maybe because I'm honest with him. (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
1: there's a rarity. Well, the success of Tales from the Crypt led to the feature films. So, which was... Hugely important, and also perhaps the greatest downfall, and we'll get into that. <laughs> but the, the first one, Ernest Dickerson, did an amazing job uh, with Demon Knight, starring Jada Pinkett. I remember visiting the set and seeing Jada covered in blood, and and it was, it, it was a blast to visit that set. Um, Bordello of Blood. Alan, you've put together a terrific podcast called oh, How yeah. Not to Make a Movie, The Making of Bordello of Blood. And everybody should listen to it. So give us a taste of how not to make a movie. Um, And Gil, you were the director on Bordello of Blood. (laughs) Yes. First of all, how did that come to be? And what was the mountain that you had to climb that (laughs) never allowed you to reach its peak?
2: Well, first of all, we weren't going to make a movie called Bordello of Blood. We had a script that we really liked. And everyone did like the producers liked, Universal liked, and we were down in New Orleans scouring locations and looking. We had ha- we had a production designer, we had a production manager. We Universal
3: had-, had signed off on this second movie called Dead Easy. We yeah, we right. we weren't there for our health. We we were we Greg Melton was there for months.
1: But there so was, was is- a star fucking quality to Universal
3: and the script that they wanted. Well, right. something else happened while we were in the background, a a little company called DreamWorks came into being. And as they began to make talent deals, I think Universal got a little frightened that, all right, they just lost Spielberg to DreamWorks. They were afraid that they might lose Zemeckis since, you know, Spielberg was his mentor. And so they approached Bob and they said, Bob, what can we do to make you stay? And I'm sure Bob had lots of great ideas and one of them he, he has always been incredibly good to his writing partner bob gale who has not had anything like the success that 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 bob z has had and so he said hey you know uh, you could buy the first script that gale and i ever wrote when we were at usc it's a thing called bordell of blood just you know buy that and so as part of the deal to keep bob happy they spent half a million dollars buying that script the, no one had any thought of, of of them making it this was a, a, a make. A make your star happy deal. And then Universal being good business people, they suddenly thought, wait a minute, we just spent half a million dollars on a student script. The exec- the 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 one of the writers is the executive producer of a movie we're about to make. We've only spent chicken scratch on that other script it's called Dead Easy. Hey, toss that, that that will that'll go right into the budget, and we'll get to, we won't have to write off half a million bucks. <laughs> and that is exactly what they did. And three weeks before we were to start formal prep in New Orleans to make Dead Easy, Universal called us home from New Orleans and said, you're not going to make that movie. You're going to make this thing called Bordello of Blood instead. And oh, by the way, the meter is still running because our release date was still our release date. And so we, we were given three weeks, a script we had never seen before that, you know, we went from a movie we were all passionate about called Dead Easy. And we were handed something we did not care about. We did not want to do. We had no reason to want to do. Called Bordello of Blood, other than the fact that we were being paid. And it was written by teenagers. The 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 two guys who wrote it would someday be some of the uh, amazing screenwriters. Absolutely, but they weren't when they wrote this script. <laughs> And the first assignment was, in addition to, "Hey, Gil, you're going to be directing the script you you haven't laid eyes on." Three weeks starting three weeks now, you're your formal prepping, and it was, "Hey, by the way, guys, now you got to go rewrite the script because you know, it was, yeah, it was a student script, so go rewrite your boss."
1: <laughs> so, Gil, tell me about how that worked. Did you have to tread lightly, knowing that you guys were rewriting a script that he and Bob Gale had written?
2: I don't think we had us tread lightly. I, yeah. I'll just say that, you know, in those days I had, I had long red hair and now I don't. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I don't have much hair at all. Um, <laughs> let alone red. Um, you know, it, it was, you know, it, I had an opportunity to say, no, I had, there wasn't a point where I could have in my heart of hearts, I could have said, I'm not going to do this, but I had done that with demon Knight. They wanted me to do demon night as the first one. And, and I said, Hmm. I think there's a better script out there that I would rather wait for. And so I turned down Demon Knight. And now if I turned down this one, I was afraid they would just say, well, he's never really going to direct anything. So let's go away from him. Um, and And the reason they wanted us to do it, I think is because they really liked our writing and directing on the Tales from the Crypt that we did, the episodes. Hmm. And so yeah, there was sure. interest in us, you know, doing that. And they thought maybe, maybe, you know, it would work. But, you know, it just was,
3: one you got to give us more than three, but you got to give us more than three weeks. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, may, maybe it could have been, if we had had six months to really to to you know deconstruct the script and 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 Bob honestly didn't care. That was that wasn't why he made that deal, right? That that had not only, to him it was take everything away. You know, you know, the the premise was kind of Tales from the Crypt ish.
1: Yes, the boobs and blood uh, elements yeah, were yeah, certainly yeah, you know, rife in Tales from the Crypt.
3: It, it wasn't off-brand, but you know, it takes time to turn something into brand. Right. And we never had the time to do that because the, the reason that we made the decision to make it was, was completely inorganic. And then because you know there was always a, a, a war going on between Joel and the IA, you know, uh, sometimes Joel was winning and sometimes the IA was The was IA winning.
1: being the film uh, unions.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah, the union that, that the represented craft unions. Our, our crew. And uh, Joel was pissed off at the, at the union for having struck uh, a TV movie we did for Fox called uh, 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 the, the Weird World. And so he said, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this movie in Los Angeles. I'm going to take it to Vancouver. And so mm. simply to take it away from Los Angeles is why we went to Vancouver. Oh, geez. We did not go to Vancouver because there was something in Vancouver that we wanted to shoot, or we even had to shoot in Vancouver. We did not. And because, you know, our schedule was our schedule and hey, three weeks was three weeks, we went in July to Vancouver and we were making a horror movie. Right. And one of the things that horror movies rely on is night. <laughs> and one of the things you don't get a whole lot of that far north in July is night.
1: Yes, as Gil can attest to right this minute. Yeah. <laughs>
3: It's it, it. It was one of those things where the story of the making of Bordello of like Blood. Why I why we why I said hey we we got to tell this story, is the making making tales from the crypt was a fantastic experience. It was so rare and so unique because it was right there at in a place where feature films and TV met where they never ever met, and so we were making a a little, a half hour feature film every week with feature talent. Yeah. And we were doing it under incredible pressure, but it was, it was like a chrysalis and I don't know, just tremendous great work came out of everybody. It was, it was an incredibly rewarding creative experience doing Tales from the Crypt and getting the two feature films was felt like reward for, you know, for, 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 for taking that franchise and really making it shine brighter than than it was shining when, when we did it. And then when we suddenly got to the experience of making Bordello of Blood, literally everything that was special about making Tales from the Crypt, we did the diametric opposite.
1: So Gil, you were the director whose responsibility it was to walk onto the set every day and give guidance and cheerleading to cast and crew. How torturous must that have been?
2: Well, it was so torturous that when Alan first suggested we tell this story, I said, listen, I gave enough blood the first go around. I I don't know if I really want to revisit this. It was very painful. It was very painful. Every day was very painful. Um, Whether we had actor problems, which we did, whether we had light problems, which we did, whether we had special effect issues, which we did,
3: our biggest yeah. problem was, was another movie. There was a movie being shot in Seattle at the same time that we were working called Assassins. Yes, our, our executive producer, Joel Silver, was also executive producing. It starred at Sylvester Stallone and Antonio Banderas. Our other boss, Dick Donner, was directing it. And once Joel made the decision that we were gonna work in Vancouver, other wheels began to turn, other incredibly inorganic wheels. And in order, I guess uh, on the set one day, Stallone approaches Joel and says, hey, Joel, you've been making a movie in Vancouver, my girlfriend, Angie, blah, 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 blah. He was engaged to a lovely person named Angie Everhart at the time. And suddenly it it seemed a great idea. They could keep Sly happy. um, And they could visit, just hop over the border over the weekend. So not only were we making a movie, suddenly that we... We didn't want to make we suddenly were being an actress was being impressed upon us that we look she's a lovely person but it's the villain it's freddy krueger mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. she she had she was a, a supermodel a, a very talented supermodel had done a few small parts she she acted in a, a jade that billy friedkin had directed and so right. Uh, as joel would not put this idea down he was a dog with a bone we we called billy and we we said billy look you you just worked with 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 angie on on jade and you know how, how is she and you know he said she's a really nice person which is true <laughs> yeah which is, she's she's really she's a very talented person well it's, billy friedman
1: being tactful must have been interesting
3: <laughs> but you know th- this this is a situation where look just because you offer someone a role doesn't mean that they can do it. And right. offering someone a, a role that they really, they haven't got the chops to do, you're not doing them a favor. You're not doing anybody a favor. And again, we weren't doing it for an organic reason that had to do with our movie that we, we thought we were making a great creative choice. Trust us, trust us, trust us. No, no, everything was entirely inorganic from where we, that, that we were making the movie, where we were making movie and now who was in the movie. And then when 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 Joel insisted that we cast Dennis Miller, to this day, one of the things we talk about in the podcast at length is why Dennis? Yeah. And to this day, we can't answer that question. Yeah, we, we can had great luck you with why Dennis Miller. We had
1: great luck with comedians on Whirlpool, but this was something entirely different. Dennis Miller
3: was the male lead. Our audience had no interest in Dennis. In fact, Dennis had no interest in doing the movie. And when we, when Joel offered him the part, in essence to say, no, Dennis said, "Uh, all right, I do it for a million dollars, figuring no one in their right mind would pay him a million dollars to be in a movie. Nobody had up to that point. But
1: welcome to Joel Silver.
3: And suddenly we were paying him a million dollars to be in our movie. Well, that wasn't in the budget. We had half a million. We had half a million in the budget. And we approached Universal and said, can we have some breakage? And they said, well, we don't want Dennis Miller. Yeah. And so that came out of our budget. That came out of the special effects budget, because that's where the money was.
1: Well, everybody should definitely listen to the how not to make a movie, the making of Bordello of Blood to to hear it in detail. But Gil, did this sour you on directing?
2: Oh, yeah, It, it soured me on everything. It, it really? just it just felt like, well, the Tales from the Crypt experience was so good, so great, so delightful, hard work, but with really, really top notch people. And, you know, I, 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 I really love that show. I loved working on that show. And the more I, the more distance I get away from that, the more I realize how much I did love it. And of course, at the time, you don't realize that because you're working your butt off just trying to make the day's work. Right. Um, so this really, you know, was a, was, was just a disaster. And every time I would think about the movie, what we planned on making in New Orleans, which I was excited about, mm. I realized, you know, I'd made a huge mistake. I should have just walked away from it and just said, screw you. I'm, I'm not doing this.
3: We, we should all have walked away from it. Uh, you know, it's going back and telling the story though, it's, is quite cathartic. Yes. and one of well the i mean you
1: two guys uh, as well as being collaborators you were close friends and some oh, of yeah. these issues
3: pulled you apart at the end of the day this this uh, this so many negative things happened on the movie doing the movie it, and then it got it the post-production phase took so long it 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 was a soul destroying experience. And, you know, to be perfectly fair, I, I think I was running on fumes anyway, creatively.
1: And you basically uh, gave up the industry.
3: I think it, I, I don't know that it was It, it was a one way street. I I, I, I after I did my second, the second season that I did on, on Outer Limits, I, I did not realize at the time I, I was in the middle of a deepening depression. And I went almost, mm, almost two decades uh, in this deepening depression and uh, but uh, you a, writer's, pulled yourself, a writer's block.
1: Yeah. But you pulled yourself out of, of Hollywood.
3: I, you know, it was strange because I, I lived, I lived here and, yeah. uh, and so many of the people that I knew were in the business. And, and yet I was estranged from, it, it was this, it was the oddest experience because this is who I am. This is yeah. what I do. I'm. I'm. And yes, I was a dad, and I. I did other things to make a living. Uh, but it was always strange because it's like I grew up with in a community of people who. Yeah, I'd say. Yeah, I used to make this TV show called Tales from the Crypt, but no one knew me as that. They mm-hmm. knew me as a dad who coached their their kid in basketball games and soccer games and ultimate frisbee games. Yeah. And one of the strangest ironies. Of, of being in the wilderness here in Los Angeles. And and literally, it, it, I, I, I couldn't have gotten a job anyway. I, I was in such a deep writer's block. I could not do it. I, I really thought I was out of stories. I, I, I couldn't do it. But I'm, I'm coaching, uh, among other things, in Silver Lake, I'm, I'm coaching uh, uh, Ultimate Frisbee. And Ultimate's a really cool game, if you, if you don't know it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, like, uh, it's like football, like football degree, but you're using a Frisbee. And there's a lot of running. It's, it, there's no no officiating. It's a self-officiating game. There are a couple of rules. Uh, and uh, among the people that I coached, because it's Silver Lake, were Billie Eilish and, uh, and her brother, uh, Phineas. Uh, one day, there was a, a rule discrepancy, and so I had to go look up one of the rules. And I bumped into something that just it, it horrified me. When I bumped into it, it was who th- th- the name of the guy who invented Ultimate Frisbee it was Joel Silver. Ah! <laughs> Joel Silver invented Ultimate Frisbee. Oh boy! Is the it was, same Joel Silver? Yeah, it's the <laughs> same Joel Silver invented Ultimate Frisbee. Oh my God! Well, and but it, you it was,
1: you have gotten back you you've gotten back to writing. And oh, yes, coming yes, up yes, with yes. stories and doing all that, Gil, yeah. you you kept producing and keep producing, yeah. but not so much writing and directing. That uh, was the Bordello experience, the the reason that you you didn't pursue that end of it so much anymore.
2: Yeah, most of that really came out of that. But then, you know, you you sort of go where the where the where the where the money is and where people want to work with you, and they really want to work with me as a producer. And so I, I started working a lot at Warner Brothers and got bigger and bigger pictures. And and, and- yeah, you're doing
1: the Superman
3: returns and doing Superman
2: returns. Did Constantine with Keanu Reeves? You, did- you were
3: their uh, tentpole producer, but you know that you you were the guy who did all their tentpole movies,
2: right? You know, and then I did Valkyrie with uh, Tom Cruise, right? So yeah, I was I was doing these huge pictures, and uh, and then you know I I lost it too because uh, one day I was I, I because of Valkyrie. I got involved with veterans and uh, I was doing a benefit at the Playboy Mansion and uh, to, one night to raise a million dollars for a place at UCLA called Operation Mend, M-A-N-D. And it's uh, for veterans, plastic surgery and mental health. It's a great organization, they're still there. Anybody who wants to help out with those people, they're, they're very worthwhile. And uh, I was having some problems with my back and one thing led to another, and literally five days after the concert, I was operated on uh, because I had c- cancer and I lost a kidney to cancer. Um, right. From that, I sort of dropped out of the world. I, I, I just couldn't, it felt to me, I, I, I couldn't really adjust to that. And in addition to that, I was working with veterans and I optioned a book uh, from a veteran named uh, Until Tuesday about his dog that he received once he was injured in, in Iraq and in Afghanistan. And I was working on this book with this fellow and make a long story short, one day I didn't hear from him for a while and I thought that's odd. And then I'm, I, I'm, I'm looking at the New York Times about two weeks later and, it talk, and there's an article about him where he says he left the dog in New York and went to San Antonio. And I'm like, he would never leave the dog. I mean, I met the dog, I spent time with him. Anyway, he went to New Orleans and he, and he committed suicide. Oh, gee. And, and, and so, you know, my work with the veterans, I, 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 that gave me more gratification than even the thought of making a movie or a TV show. And so I left the business. I, I, I said, I think I made a big mistake in my life because I should have done something more significant than what I did and making, you know, working with veterans and trying to raise more money for veterans seemed much more rewarding to than, than anything I I had done in the movies. And I, I really thought I would never make another movie or TV show again. And, and then after this friend committed suicide, that threw me into another tizzy. And for another four or five years, I just, I, you know, I, I think I just walked around Los Angeles. I, I, I don't really know what I did. So, so, and, and then slowly, but surely I started coming out of it and realizing that I, st- I still have wanted, I, I, I wanted to tell stories, but from a different point of view, I didn't want to be a gun to hire. I wanted to be controlling of IPs. And so from that, I started, you know, accumulating in a very small way, um, book rights and, and, uh, article rights and so on. And, you know, today, that's really kind of my business and what, 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 what I'm doing. And, 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 you know, the, 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 perhaps one of the most joyous moments of my entire career, um, and I don't really want to get too, you know, into this, but was reconnecting with Alan. Hmm. Because Alan represented so much of the good part of my life, my creative life and my personal life, because we were friends, you know, we would we would work together all day, every day, five days a week. And then on the weekends, what did we do? We would have dinner with our wives or we go, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. we'd, we'd go there, you know. And, and it was like, it was like, that wasn't work. There was, yeah. I was spending time with somebody who I really wanted to spend time with. Well, so- it's, a,
1: it's a great happy ending, you know and you've been able to have both. You made films and television that have made a lasting impact that matter to people. And you were able to do your work with the veterans and and be able to fulfill two sides of of your psychic needs.
2: I, I suppose, in retrospect, I could, I could, you could say that. It, it, going through it, you don't feel that way at all. You just feel yeah. lost. You know, you just feel like, what did I make? I, I, I did this all wrong. I, I did this all wrong.
1: So you both went through severe depression about uh, about where your work led you.
2: I mean, I, I just give you an idea about this guy who you're sitting across from. Uh, I'm sitting across from. I, I have cancer, and I'm operated on. And we hadn't spoken in for years. And Alan out of the blue called me
3: to ask me how I was feeling. Yeah. Well, um, well hey man, you <laughs> I don't know. it 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 seemed cancer is, is something where you you, you yeah. forget everything else.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But you know, that phone call made, made was the world to me. I mean that that phone call made made me really think a lot about, you know, where we were, where we came from, what really happened. And and we never really,
3: we, we, we never did. Well, we never did address it or resolve it. And strangely, the podcast is where it was, where it all happened.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's, It's
1: a really special event and I think everybody should listen to it, but I'm really happy to be able to bring you guys together here and for, for you to tell this story. This is a really important thing to be told and make public.
3: Yeah, I, I and I, I there's just one more thing I want to say about the podcast. It 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 was it's odd how it was not the intention that the podcast would restart a relationship with Gil, which it has a creative relationship too. We're we're working on projects now, uh, but it also it, it opened it opened doors and it rekindled my relationship with with every everyone in the crypt community with whom yeah I, I craved to to have these relationships back. And so it's the podcast itself that it's the mechanism that creates the happy ending. And there is a happy ending. Pretty remarkable. At the second season. (laughs)
1: it's remarkable and it's great to to share in that reunion with you guys especially because Um, i played a small part in that playground that we
2: were all
3: uh
1: making you're part of the
3: family mick come on come on
1: yeah and those
2: in those formidable years mick it wasn't such a small part when we were there with lawrence vanger i remember you and i sitting in an office bemoaning the fact of what we're trying to do and this guy who we're working for was doing everything you know supposedly for us but wasn't
1: <laughs> in our way yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's for sure well guys thank you so much for joining us and for opening up and telling your story and telling all of those stories you have over the years and hopefully more to come soon
2: thanks very much
3: thanks for having us make a real pleasure and uh, look forward to talking to you soon man
2: always all
1: right take care guys thank and Thanks. thank you very much Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.
0: Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.